so I don't have to tell you to do that. But good morning, church. And welcome to week five of a series we're calling Surrender. Now, this series really is based on a word that God gave us as a staff and, and as our leadership team about what he is calling us to do in 2023, that as a church and as individuals in the church, God is calling us to surrender ourselves to him, which quite simply means that we would come to a place to posture ourselves before God, that we say, Lord, whatever you need, whatever you want, whatever I need to give up, whatever you're asking me to do, God, I will listen and I will obey. That we would be a people that when we hear God speak, we wouldn't hesitate and we wouldn't hang back, but we would be obedient to him. But you know, often Christians in this church and churches around the world, often we as Christians, we get caught in this trap where we like to focus on salvation, on the reality that when you believe in Jesus, you are saved, which is a free gift. Believe, you're saved. It's automatic. There's no strings attached. Just believe and you're saved. We love to focus on that. But often in our Christian walk, where people start to stumble and people start to turn away from God, is when they start to hear God call them to do something, to give something up, to step out in faith, to trust him with things. We'd, we'd rather sit at home bored than be obedient when God says, go out, serve me. We would rather sit back in fear then go and talk to people that are in pain and encourage them and pray over them when God tells us to do that. We would rather rely on our resources and our finances and our bank accounts than trust God that when he says give, he will provide us with all we need. Because this idea of surrender is coming to a place where we say, God, whatever you ask, I will give it. Because you see, the reality is the blessing, the blessing God wants to pour out on your life and in your heart, blessing requires obedience. The blessing God wants to pour out on your life requires obedience. Let me prove it to you. John 5. We find this story. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but we find this story where Jesus, he's been preaching, and it's been a long service. And the disciples, they come to him, and, and they're like, Jesus, you got this crowd of 10,000 people. The Bible says there's 5,000 men, not including women and children, so safe estimate. Probably around 10,000 people are, are listening to Jesus. And the disciples come to him, and they're like, Jesus, you've been preaching all afternoon. We're tired. They're tired. Moxie's is about to close. Everyone's hungry. Let's just dismiss the service. That's it. Pray. Pray and be done, Jesus, please. And Jesus looks at them. And he's like, no, no, no. You feed them. And they're like, I'm sorry, Jesus. I think, I think you heard us wrong. Um, the people are tired. There's 10,000 of them. 
let's send them and they can go get food. And Jesus is like, no, no, what do you have? You feed them. And they're like, well, Jesus, all we have is five loaves and two fish. And he's like, okay, bring them to me. And then divide everyone into groups of 50, which imagine crowd of 10,000 dividing people into 50. I would rather herd cats through a desert. <laughs> like that sounds horrible. But, but, but they divide them into groups. Jesus takes the, the bread and the fish and he raises them to heaven and he blesses them. And then he breaks it and he puts the pieces in the disciples' hands. And then he says, go feed the crowd. And in that moment, the disciples had a choice. Were they going to eat the bread themselves, because they're also hungry, or were they going to be obedient? And the disciples in that moment, they decide, hey, we're going to be obedient, and so they go, and they start to distribute the bread, and they're like, this half a loaf isn't going to go very far, but as they go, it doesn't run out, and it doesn't run out, and it doesn't run out. And suddenly, the all 10,000 people are fed, and they gather up the fragments of the bread that remains, and it fills 12 baskets full. See, the reality is the bread always had the potential to be multiplied in Jesus' hands. Once he blessed it, it had the potential to be multiplied, but it was only when the disciples were obedient that the miracle happened. It's only when they surrendered their own opinion of how to feed the crowd and were obedient that the blessing was poured out. You know, over the last six or so weeks of this series, we've been five weeks, I guess, of this series, we've been talking a lot about being like a child before God. It's this reality that scripture tells us that when we believe in Jesus, you become a child of God, which means that you have access to the Father. You are loved by the Father. And last week, we talked about how God wants to teach you so that you learn, instead of learning from the world and from what other people say and from what you feel should be maybe right, you can learn from God about what is actually true. But part of the teaching and the relationship we get to have with God as our Father and as children of God is, is that we get this opportunity to be obedient to God and, and this is where people aren't going to like me very much, and to be disciplined by God. So I want to take some time this morning to talk about the blessing of discipline. What does it mean for God to bless us with discipline? You know, growing up, Actually, just even now, it, when I think about discipline, I'm sure many of you are like me, when I think of these two words, obedience and discipline, I often think back to growing up and having parents. Because as most of you have probably experienced, growing up is a learning process of learning to be obedient and being disciplined when you're not. It, it's very simple um, equation, really, for, for a lot of parents. But, but I, 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 me being a very rebellious kid, I, um, it's really honestly by the grace of God that my mom didn't kill me as a toddler or a teenager. 
and that I didn't kill myself by doing the stupid things that I did against my parents' wishes. Um, but I, I, I experienced, being a very rebellious kid, I experienced a lot of discipline. My parents were trying to teach me to act a certain way, for, usually for my benefit, but often I would get punished for things that I did because I was being disobedient. They would ground me, they would take away my uh, electronics, and when I was young, before it was illegal in Ontario, they would spank me, you know, that kind of thing. Punishment. Punish you want to know one thing that does not work, kids? Telling your parents that spanking is illegal does not work. Know that from experience. Um, so they punished me to discipline me so that I would behave a certain way. And then my definition of discipline became about punishment. Now, I'm not going to speak to the effectiveness of the methods they used. I can just tell you they didn't work. Um, for me, at least, they didn't work. Because I just got more careful at hiding what I was doing so I wouldn't get in trouble. But for many of us, that is our perspective of discipline. It's, I punish you when you do something bad so that you will stop doing bad things. It's all about control. See, our earthly model of discipline is all about control. If I can do, convince you that what you're doing is wrong by punishing you so severely that you learn, oh, the punishment is worse than actually doing what they want, then I can control you. And this happens all throughout society. It happens in our families. Families are just a great illustration of it. Um, it happens in our families. It happens in our jobs. It happens in governments. It happens in churches. Christians like to look at other people who sin differently than they do and be like, oof, man, you need to be more like Jesus. And Jesus is like, yeah, why don't you get the log out of your own eye instead of working on the speck in theirs? Um, but it's this idea of if I can control you, I can change your behavior. And it's punishment to avoid, to prevent disobedience. I heard a pastor put it this way. It's this idea of, if I stick a gun in your face, I can make you do whatever I want. But that's not God's discipline. That's our discipline. We want to control our kids. We want to control our coworkers. We want to control people around us to prevent them from doing things we don't like. But that's not God's view of discipline. See, God's view of discipline is, it's all about love. You see, Jesus didn't come and die on the cross so he could play puppet master over your life. He isn't interested in controlling you. He isn't interested in controlling how you think or what you do. He wants to love you. And through that love, he wants to teach you a different way to live, God's discipline is not like ours. God's discipline is about love. See, Hebrews chapter 12 puts it this way. It says, verse 5, you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as children. 
My child, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or lose heart when you are punished by him. For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every child whom he accepts. Endure trials for the sake of discipline. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom a parent does not discipline? If you do not have that discipline in which all children share, then you are illegitimate and not his children. Moreover, we had human parents to discipline us, and we respected them. Should we not be even more willing to be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good in order that we might share in his holiness. Now, discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, you might read that verse and be like, Darian, I think you're wrong. Because this verse says very clearly that God disciplines and punishes his children. Yeah, but what's the context? See, if you read it from that earthly perspective, like our view of discipline is all about punishment to control, yeah, it's easy to see God and read God as being like, ooh, I'm the big bad dad up in heaven with my belt out. Get ready for your spanking when you mess up. But that's not what this verse is saying. You see, in the Greek, the word that is used here for discipline is the Greek word paideia, which literally means instruction that trains, or to develop someone to reach full maturity. Instruction that trains. I read this quote in in a study guide. It said this. If you can throw up the next slide here. There we go. The word does not have in it the idea of punishment, but of corrective measures that will eliminate evil in life and encourage good. God disciplines us not to punish us, but to teach us what is right. Now you might be thinking, okay, that's really good, but it also said earlier that God punishes us. Yeah, that word is literally, the proper translation would be convicts. God convinces us of when we do bad things and teaches us a better way to live. See, it's easy for us to read Hebrews 12 from an earthly perspective of discipline and be like, ah, God, oh no, I don't want to be disciplined by you, God. And, and, and we're worried that God is, is, is just up in heaven waiting to drop the hammer on us when we mess up. But the reality is, what it says is God uses trials. He uses the things that happen in your life not to punish you, but to teach you. To call you to a higher standard. You know, a couple weeks ago, towards the end of our Spirit-Filled Life series, um, in one of my messages, I made a comment. And it was just a comment that, it, I made it because I felt, it felt good in the moment. And it was speaking against, like, certain people who believe that God is powerless in this day and, and through that disbelief they sow division in the church. And, and I made this comment, I planned on making it, I'm not going to repeat it now because there's no point, but, but I planned on making it and, and I said it and, and it felt really good. 
So you know, sometimes when you're angry, it feels really good to just let it out. And then I went home, didn't think of it, was like, oh yeah, we're good. And, and one night I'm lying in bed, trying to fall asleep, and that night God had told me, like, you need to listen to your Bible as you fall asleep. And so I'm like, okay, all right, cool. And so I, I open the, the YouVersion Bible app, put on an audio Bible, and start listening to uh, First Peter, and starts going through, and partway through, the, the reader's like, First Peter, chapter 3. And it's such a calming voice, like... It's, it's amazing. I love, I love audio Bibles for that. But 1 Peter chapter 3. And it gets down to verse 8 and he says, Finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It's for this that you were called that you might inherit a blessing. Just a normal verse. But in that moment, God spoke to me and he says, Darian, on Sunday, you made a comment that was a comment that was speaking against my children who are acting in ignorance. And you were repaying evil for evil. You were sowing division in the church. The same way you're upset at them sowing division, you were sowing division. And God called me out. And immediately I was like, okay, God, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm, I apologized. I repented of it to God. And then uh, the next day I, after I got up and my wife got up because she doesn't like if I wake her up in the middle of the night, um, I repented of it to her, told some of the staff, repented of it to them. And I'm, now I'm repenting of it to you. Because the reality is that the comment I made, I'm not going to repeat it, but the comment I made was divisive and it was wrong and I'm sorry. And in that moment... As I'm trying to fall asleep, God disciplined me. Now notice, it's been several weeks since, since that time. He hasn't struck me dead. <laughs> he hasn't smitten me with some crazy disease. He didn't give me the silent treatment. He didn't say, oh, well, you screwed up one, one too many times. Now you're out of ministry. No, no, no. God, in that moment, he came to me and he said, Darian, what you said was wrong. This is my standard. I'm calling, you're better than that. I'm calling you to my standard of living. See, God's discipline is about love. And it's about calling us to a higher standard of living. See, in John chapter 15, Jesus makes this comment. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit, but every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. Now this is an allegory of a grapevine, that Jesus is the vine, Jesus is rooted in the ground, and we are the branches. And Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, and God, the Father, is the vine grower. He's the farmer. He's the one looking after the vine. Now notice it says, he removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Which is really specifically saying, there is a judgment day that is coming for people who do not believe in Jesus. And at that point, your, the, the penalty of their sins will be dealt out on them. Judgment is coming. Those who do not believe in Jesus will be cut off from the vine. 
But notice, every branch that bears fruit, i.e. those of us who believe in Jesus, what does he do? He prunes. There's a cutting either way. You're cut if you don't believe in Jesus, and you're cut if you do. Why? Well, this, the reality is, with vineyards and grapevines and whatnot, if you don't take care of the vine, the dead branches will sap life from the vine and eventually kill it. And if you only remove the dead branches and just don't prune the living branches, they will produce lush foliage and leaves, but no fruit. And so for us to bear fruit, which is the good things God wants to bring into our life, we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, all these things God wants to produce in our hearts. If we are to bear fruit, God needs to prune us. He needs to discipline us. He needs to reveal to us when we are acting contrary to his will and to what he says, not to punish us. Not to drop the hammer on us, but to love us and call us to a higher standard. God wants to teach us and reveal to us when we do wrong things, not to hurt us, but to show us there's a better way to live. And I'm calling you now to my standard. You know, there's a story in in John chapter 8. It's a story, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, but... It's the story about a woman caught in the act of committing adultery. And the story goes that Jesus, he's teaching. He's in the temple. He's doing his thing. He's teaching to this crowd. And the religious people of the day drag this woman up who's been caught in the act of committing adultery. I always wonder, where's the man? Because this isn't like modern day where adultery is, or can be considered watching pornography. No, no, they didn't catch her in front of a computer screen. They caught her, caught her with a guy. Where's the guy? I don't know. But they bring this woman, and they're like, Jesus, look how horrible she is. Should we kill her, or should we kill her? It's a trick question. And Jesus, he ignores them. It says he bends down, and he begins to write on the ground with his finger. And they continue to insist, Jesus, what should we do to her? And he looks up at them and he says, the one who has never sinned can throw the first stone. Whoever among you has never sinned, you can start her execution and then the rest of you can join. And in that moment, everyone leaves until it's just Jesus and this woman. And it says, verse 10, Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Notice, the one person present who had never sinned and who had the right to begin the execution was Jesus. He sends everyone away He scares everyone off and he looks at her and he says, I don't condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. 
And in that moment, the woman encountered unexplainable grace. She had messed up. She deserved punishment, but she was forgiven. And Jesus demonstrated his discipline in that moment by calling her to a higher standard. He's like, you know what you did was wrong. I don't need to tell you that. I don't need to teach you that. You know what you did was deserving of death, but I'm telling you, go now and live a life free from sin. This is my standard. See, our earthly discipline is all about control and punishment.
image. You might have a word. You might have a memory pop into your mind. A Bible verse might come up. Whatever it is, first test it. Is it loving? Does it glorify Jesus? Is it in line with who God has revealed to be in his word? Because if it's not, it's not from God. Does it line up with scripture? So, ask the Holy Spirit, what is this? What are you trying to show me? Where are you trying to call me to a higher step? And then once you hear something, just ask the Holy Spirit this follow-up question. What is your standard? What is your standard? Again, take note of what he says. If it lines up with scripture, if it's loving, if it glorifies Jesus, then receive it. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, begin to grow. Listen and obey. To deal with things in your life that you might enjoy but are secretly destroyed. Thank you. 